Just a quick apology before we begin this week's episode of The Painful Truth about the audio quality of what follows. Unfortunately, I'm still having some issues uploading the audio files to the Substack platform that drives this podcast, and the result is that the quality is down at the moment. We're working hard to fix it, and my apologies in the meantime. Well, hello again, I'm Tony Payne, and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth, the weekly text and audio journal that seeks to apply the truth of Christ crucified and all that the scriptures say about him to our lives as his people. And this is another partners-only edition of The Painful Truth, sent out to you blessed people who've joined up as subscribers or who've contacted me and asked especially to be on the weekly list. Today, we think about evangelism, the gospel, the importance of catechism and learning the gospel and other little subjects like that uh, in a little piece that I've called, Is It Worth Fixing? The washing machine was broken again and it was flashing an F06 error on the display. I somehow miraculously found the old dog-eared manual and started Glancing through the error messages, I saw F03, which was turn the tap on, you idiot. And there was F10, clean the filter, you idiot, like you were supposed to every six months, but haven't for six years. But of course, it wasn't going to be something as simple as that. I saw F6, and it said, call the service department and get ready to bleed cash, you poor sap. And so the internal debate begins, as it always does in these circumstances. Is it worth fixing? Do I really want to pour 400 bucks into a 15-year-old washing machine or pay $1,000 for a new one? Then again, 400 would be good value if I got another 10 years out of it. But will we get another 10 years out of it? And on and on the internal debate goes. I hate those sorts of dilemmas, I have to say. But every exercise in repair or renovation raises those sorts of questions. And I've been thinking in this same vein recently about the venerable gospel outline, Two Ways to Live, and whether or not it's worth fixing. Two Ways to Live has been around now for ooh, just over 40 years, with really only fairly minor nips and tucks over that period. The training material, um, which now exists as a course called Two Ways to Live, Know and Share the Gospel, that's been around for nearly as long, although it's been a f through a few more revisions over that time, although the last major revision is nearly 20 years ago now. It certainly seems time for some renovation or repair, but is it worth it? Or is something like Two Ways to Live one of those resources that was great in its time and context has done a wonderful job, but is now just no longer really relevant or useful? And would it be better to scrap it, or perhaps to start again? To answer this question, you have to ask an underlying question, and that is, why have a gospel outline like this in the first place? And what would a good gospel outline look like? Is Two Ways to Live still a good gospel outline? Or does it need major repair? And thinking back over the history of Two Ways to Live, and the many conversations and discussions I've had about these issues over the years. Since the early 80s, when I first learned Two Ways to Live and became involved shortly after uh, in editing and publishing and writing aspects of it, uh, 
I think I'd summarize the rationale and the nature of a gospel outline in the following six points. And I guess it has to be six points, doesn't it? Point one, any outline like Two Ways to Live is predicated on the idea that the gospel is a certain thing and not something else, that the gospel has an identifiable content that is able to be summarized and learned and spoken and shared. And this is because the gospel is not a philosophy or a theory that's constantly shifting, although it does have philosophical underpinnings and implications. The gospel is not a story as such, although it does have narrative elements and it sits often within a larger historical story. And it's not primarily an answer to a set of questions that we might have, although depending on what sort of news a gospel announces, it, it may answer certain questions. A gospel, as many of you know, is primarily a piece of news. It's an announcement. It's a trumpet blast declaring that something of great importance has happened. And that's what any sort of gospel is. That's what the word gospel means. And in the case of the New Testament gospel, it's an announcement that certain meaningful, important events have taken place concerning Jesus Christ, and that this has led to a particular state of affairs now being in effect and a particular future that's in store. And in this sense, the New Testament gospel announcement is a promise. It's something that is heard and believed and acted upon. So secondly then, what would be the identifiable content of this New Testament gospel announcement? I guess you could summarize it by saying that the crucified and risen Jesus has been established as the Christ, the Lord of all the world, that God now offers forgiveness of sins through Jesus' atoning death to everybody who repents and puts their trust in him, and that in the future, Jesus will return to judge the world and to save his people. Or something like that. We could quibble about the precise way of putting it and how to connect the various elements of the gospel announcement together. And we could also discuss what kind of background knowledge might be required to understand the announcement. For example, I've used words like sins and atonement and Christ in that little summary, all of which would need unpacking and and explaining and might need some background to understand what, for example, a Christ is. But the gospel is a thing like this. It's a declaration of the meaning and implications of certain events that have happened in history or that will happen. It's not a malleable set of metaphors that answers certain longings that we have. It's an announcement about Jesus that calls for a response. So point three, how do we know that this is the case? And how do we discover that the New Testament gospel is an announcement with this kind of content? Well, the answer, as always, is to be apprentices, to be good apprentices to God and to Jesus Christ by sitting at the feet of the scriptures. And when we go to the apostolic authors and see what they took the gospel to be and how they preached the gospel, 
we find that it's this kind of thing. When we start with the nutshell gospel preaching that's in the gospels itself, when Jesus, for example, says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, that gives a certain shape to what a gospel is or what the gospel is and how we should respond. And then we might go through the various other examples that we find, through perhaps to the commission to preach the gospel to the nations that happens in Luke 24, for example, or the actual examples of gospel preaching that we find in Acts in the various gospel sermons that we discover there, or the retrospective summaries of the gospel that we find in the epistles in places like 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. If we do this exercise and we attend to these various passages carefully, we discover a consistent core of content, a tradition, as the New Testament sometimes calls it, a core of gospel content, a good deposit that was to be kept and guarded and preached and taught and passed on. And this process of looking through all the gospel summaries and preaching of the New Testament was in fact how Two Ways to Live came to be written through this process of examining carefully how the apostolic authors framed the content of the gospel in their evangelism and identifying the core elements of the announcement and how they fitted together, what their logic was, and then seeking to summarise that in a coherent and memorable, understandable form. And this leads me to point four and to a little sidebar, I guess you'd say. In pondering whether or how to fix two ways to live and renovate it, I've been looking back over all the different bits of feedback and critique that we've received about two ways to live over the years. And one of the more significant recent pieces of critique uh, is found in Sam Chan's book, fairly recent book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Uh, the section on two ways to live is between pages 86 and 89. Now, Sam claims that two ways to live was written as a quite brilliant exercise, he says, in 1980s gospel contextualization. According to Sam, Two Ways to Live was a success because it targeted a particular kind of person, the ex-Sunday school-going, prodigal son, university type of that period, who resonated with the idea of giving up their rebellion against God that they'd been undergoing, and submitting again to God as their ruler. But that was then. Uh, Sam argues that the main concepts of two ways to live, or metaphors as he calls them, of God being the ruler and of us rejecting or rebelling against his rule and needing to turn back and submit again to his rule, that, as he puts it, and I quote, these find little existential traction in the postmodern West where authority figures impose their artificially constructed laws upon us to take away our freedom and authenticity. That's why in the postmodern West, our moral heroes are the rebels who resist and overthrow authorities, such as kings, to preserve freedom and authenticity. Think of the American Revolution, or the Australian Bushranger, or Braveheart and his cry of freedom. I have to say... This strikes me as strange. I'm really struggling to understand how the anti-authoritarianism of the American Revolution or Aussie Bushrangers or Braveheart are evidence that what was contextually brilliant in the 1980s no longer has postmodern existential traction. It's a very strange argument. 
Not to mention, and it's simply not how things were in the 1980s, or 70s or 90s for that matter, speaking as someone who was there in all of those decades. Because people loved rebellion and hated submission to authority every bit as much in the 1980s as they do today. In fact, perhaps even more so, I would say. But the point of this little sidebar is really to correct the record, I guess, as to how Two Ways to Live came to be written and what it's trying to do. What drove the choice of concepts was not a contextualised kind of discernment as to which metaphors might have the most traction, but it was a principled effort to capture the essential elements and logic of the New Testament gospel as the New Testament presented it and to express those elements and that logic in a contemporary language for biblically illiterate people, biblically illiterate Australians of the, that period. Now, all of this raises an important larger question that we don't really have time to address in this edition of The Painful Truth, but I will come back to. And that has to do with the nature of evangelism and apologetics more broadly. Is it the task of evangelism to identify the messages that will have traction in our culture and to craft our gospel message accordingly? I don't think it is. But as I said, that's a larger question, and I'll come back to it in another edition in the near future. But that brings us to point five. Why, we must now ask, if the gospel is a particular thing with identifiable content, why is summarising it in a short, memorable outline form a good idea? And the main reason is the one that the New Testament itself gives whenever it does this, as it does in various places, such as in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. In that passage, for example, Paul wants to remind his readers of the gospel that he preached to them, on which they've taken their stand, he says. He wants to lodge it firmly in their minds. He wants them to keep hold of it so that they'll be saved. In other words, a gospel reminder, a gospel summary or outline is very useful for the Christian life. It's very useful as a form of what we used to call catechesis, for teaching Christians the basic truths of the gospel in a way that they can grasp and learn and internalize. And Two Ways to Live was designed to serve this kind of function, to lodge a simple gospel-shaped framework of belief in Christian heads. And interestingly, many of the suggestions I've received over the years to improve Two Ways to Live have asked it to do more in this area, to be more doctrinal than it is. That is, to be more explicit or detailed about the Trinity, or to say more about the person and work of the Spirit, or the nature of imputed righteousness, and so on. And our answer has always been that the gospel is not the sum total of the Christian faith, although it is the kind of structuring, animating centre of our faith. None of the excellent and important doctrinal themes that have been suggested over the years and which Christians need to understand and come to come to terms with, none of them form part of the gospel preaching or gospel summaries of the New Testament, which is why they never made it into two ways to live. Well, that brings us to point six, and that is that the other obvious and related purpose of a gospel outline, like two ways to live, is to give Christians confidence and competence and ability 
to share the gospel that they've learned with other people, to believe and therefore speak, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.13. And as I reflect back over the history of Two Ways to Live as a resource, I think this is the area where it's most been used, but I think it's also the area in which we've most failed to explain what Two Ways to Live is like and is for. As a gospel outline, Two Ways to Live was designed to be a skeleton, to be an easy-to-remember skeletal summary of the key concepts of the gospel. It was boiled down to the bone. It was designed to be as short and as memorable and as boiled down as it could be for that reason. And so, like all skeletons, it needs flesh and blood in order to live Two Ways to Live is like six memorable hooks on which you can hang a conversation or six unforgettable landmarks on a map that helps you arrive at your destination. It was never meant to be trotted out or parroted off or handed out even as a bullet point gospel presentation. All the same, I'm not sure we've communicated that as clearly as we might have because over the years, Two Ways to Live has been criticised for not being warm enough or relational enough or joyful enough, perhaps, or existentially authentic enough. And these are all things that skeletons can never be. Warmth and joy and relational authenticity, these are all important in evangelism. But they come in the personal conversation that the outline equips you to have. It can't, they can't be contained in an outline itself. I wouldn't say that 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8 is particularly warm or existentially authentic. It's a really brief summary of, of the tradition, of the gospel content that Paul preached and passed on. The warmth and the joy comes in the personal relationship, in the conversation, or for that matter, in the gospel talk or the Bible study or the relational five-week course that the gospel helps you to structure. And I think as we do renovate and repair Two Ways to Live, we need to make this even clearer. Well, this may not be a big surprise, but I think I've persuaded myself that Two Ways to Live is worth renovating rather than scrapping. After all this time, it does remain a very effective attempt at capturing the core content and logic of the key elements of the New Testament gospel. And that gospel hasn't changed in the past 40 or 400 years. It's certainly worth looking again at Two Ways to Live, at how it could be sharpened and improved, and whether any of its language is now dated or doesn't communicate as well. And I think in particular it's worth going back to square one and rethinking how we could utilise the outline more effectively, both for catechising Christians and helping them really learn the gospel well, and also in equipping them to share that gospel with others in creative ways. To that end, I'm actually hoping you might help me. Uh, later this week, I'm going to send around on the email version of The Painful Truth, I won't do this as an audio, a draft revision of the Two Ways to Live outline. And that will only just go out to Painful Truth partners. And I'd really appreciate your feedback and comments in trying to make what has always been a very effective gospel summary, even more effective for our contemporary language and our contemporary time.
Well, that's about all I have for this week on The Pound for Truth. As always, I'm really interested in your feedback about the gospel, gospel outlines and two ways to live in particular. I'll send around that email with the revised outline in a few days' time, and I'd really appreciate um, any comments or feedback you can give me on how we could do two ways to live even better. Well, that's all for this week. I'm Tony Payne. Thanks for being with me on The Painful Truth. Bye for now.